Your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. It is alive, an anchor in the storm, a compass in the wild. Your word is a foundation built with truth, unmoving and undiminished. By its light, all is seen and known. On your word, we stand. Well, good morning and a happy new year. I trust and hope um, that whatever like commitments and promises and even resolutions that you've made um, this year to either do something different that you've never done before or stop something that you've always done before, whatever the resolution, the goal, even whatever you want to call it, I trust that because it's only January 6th, you're still going strong. And you won't... At I don't know, you'll make it until at least this time in February before you completely fold in and, and stop doing whatever it is you thought that you might do. I'm so excited about this series and this passage of Scripture and where we're going to dive in and what's really going to be an arc for us over the next couple of weeks. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and open them up and turn to the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, um, Matthew chapter 7, the last part of Jesus' longest discourse, because when you're Jesus, we don't call your messages sermons, we call them discourses, because that sounds fancy and um, thoughtful and educated. Of course, he is, and so we're going to call this the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the close of that discourse. And, and if you've ever paid attention to any port part of this sermon, any part of what Jesus talked about. He did all the things that they taught us in seminary not to do. Like all, and, and he can because he's Jesus. Like He can literally do whatever he wants. So he literally, in one context of a message, and if you read Matthew chapter 5 through 7 straight through from start to finish, you would literally be able to do it in like half an hour, 45 minutes, getting stumbled up on a couple little moments and be fine. You'd get through towards the end. And, and you'd realize that, hey, this was, a, this was a pretty longer than a TED talk, shorter than like messages were 100 years ago. Like he's under the hour mark. So that part is a really good thing. Don't worry, I'm not gonna head that far today. But you're sitting there going, he covered a lot of topics in just that one sermon. And again, he can because he's Jesus. And at the close of it, you read this little portion. This is how Jesus summed up what his words were that day and also how the people responded. So Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24, he says this, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You see, for the Jewish person who was hearing these words in that day, they're looking at like the common vernacular language of Greek. It was the language that everybody spoke. Jesus, particularly in Aramaic, this has been translated for us in Greek so that everybody could read it. And we're looking at these words, but knowing that these are Israelites, that these are God's people. Had he been speaking their native language of Hebrew, that word here would have been the word Shema, which is the most important confession of faith that any Israelite would have made. And Jesus wouldn't have had to go any further than to say, therefore, everyone who Shema, because Shema contained with it not just the idea of hearing the word, but also doing the word. There is uh, only a couple of vocabulary words in Hebrew, like it's a language, vocabulary poor language, and so those words always have to pull double duty. So Shema, which means to hear, 
also meant to obey. So to be a good Israelite, to be a good listener, to be a good learner in that moment meant that if you heard the word, you also obeyed the word. And if you didn't hear the word, you didn't obey the word. If you didn't obey the word, that meant that you didn't hear it the first time and somebody's gonna have to repeat it. All the moms in the room say amen because that's what we do. Like if you don't do what I say as a parent, I'm gonna repeat it because chances are really good. I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt that if you don't do what I said, then that means you must have not heard what I said. For Jesus, that word would have covered it all. Anyone who shema, that means hears the word and does the word. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is painting a word picture for these people so that they can understand what he's talking about. He was like, hey, you know somebody who built their house on the rock? That's wisdom because the rock is still gonna be there when bad things happen and the house is gonna stand. He elaborates, the rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. The reason the house didn't fall was not because it was built out of bricks or mortar or I really should have researched this. Whatever it is they build houses out of, yesterday or today, I don't know. I'm not a construction worker, but check it out. Whatever it is, the house did not stand because of what it was built out of. It stood because of what it was built on top of. And Jesus is painting for them a picture that they would have understood. You want to know why? Because they built their own houses. And they understood what that meant. He said, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, you're a foolish one because if you don't hear it and obey it, then you didn't get the words connected. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And I love the idea that This Bible doesn't say for us, if the rains come, if the streams rise, if the winds blow and beat against your house. It illustrates when those things happen. Because we're not to be a people who are shocked by disaster, shocked by calamity, shocked when things don't go right. Because the Bible plainly tells us just because we follow Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we're going to have this easy, simple road in life. So when the rains come, when the streams rise, when the winds blow and beat against your house, If it's on the rock, it can stand, but on the sand, it will fall, and not just fall, but it's going to fall with a great crash. Jesus is saying, if you hear everything that I've said, everything that he talked about in the previous 45 minutes, if you heard every bit of that and followed it, you built your house on a solid foundation. But if you heard all of that and let it go in one ear, out the other, you love that expression, in one ear, out the other, and you didn't do what Jesus said, then all that bad stuff that happens... All those shocking calamities that come, they're going to make you fall, and the fall's going to be great. It says in, in verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. They were used to teaching. They were used to public oration. They were used to people opening up the Old Testament words of God and ascribing to them what they meant. They were used to the idea that God told them what his word was. They were used to the idea that rabbis and teachers would come and tell them what all those words meant. But Jesus was different, and they recognized it, and they were amazed by it. He taught as one, why? Who had authority. That's a Greek word, exousia. And it illustrates something really special about Jesus that the other Pharisees, the other scribes, the other teachers of the law didn't quite have. You see, they may have had authority to teach the law, but they didn't have authority over the law. 
they recognize something different. And Jesus, that word exousia, it means a couple different things. One, it means power of choice, liberty. Like we think of that when we think of the word authority. Like I have the power to choose. Uh, We talk about rights in this country. I have the right to choose or I have the right to declare my own destiny and to choose my own path and to go my own way. Well, that's exousia. I have authority over me and I can make certain decisions. Like I can dye my hair purple because I have the authority in my life to do that and no one can tell me, 40-year-old man, that I can't dye my hair purple. Now, many of you, if you are my friends would tell me that I should not dye my hair purple because it won't work for me. But you can't tell me that I can't dye the hair purple, blue, green, whatever, because I have the right to do that. I have the right to exercise that kind of authority in my life. Exousia also means physical or mental power. It was also saying that, wow, Jesus had something different about him to understand and to digest and to dissect and to explain these words to us. There was a a mental prowess in Jesus that was different than any other teacher that they had ever heard before. It also means influence and privilege. And then, of course, authority means rule of government. And I love the idea that you and I have authority over some things in life. We have authority over every decision you want to make in life, except for those things that are illegal for you to do. Like, you have a right to do anything and everything, except for those things for which you don't have a right to do. Like, I can, I don't know, dye my hair purple and eat pizza every single day for the rest of my life. Bad choices. Now, you, you may dye your hair purple and it works for you. And I'll be the first to tell you if it looks awesome but I need somebody to be honest with me in those moments. Like, you have the right to do those things, but you don't have the right, at least here, where my British people, you don't have a right here to drive on the opposite side of the road because, well, it's your right, it's your authority. You have that privilege. No, you don't because that's illegal and you'll get caught and cause an accident and it will be disastrous. I have the right to, I don't know, wear whatever I want, say whatever I want, but, but I don't have the right to drive on the wrong side of the road and throw trash out my window. You have the right to do anything. You have the authority to do anything and everything that you want to do except for that which you don't have the right and the authority to do. And the big question mark for us as a culture and as a society, and particularly in our country right now, is what do we and do we not have the right to do? And what does this word have to say about it? So Jesus closes this message of explaining to them the idea of prayer, the idea of marriage, the idea of fasting and worship, the idea of salvation, the idea of anger and hatred, and what you're supposed to do in a situation where you feel that lust or you feel that power or you feel... He gives all these explanations, quoting many passages from the Old Testament, explaining to them what that stuff meant. And he closes that message by saying, if you do the things that I say, you're building your foundation on a rock that will always stand. But if you hear the words of mine and you don't do the things that I say, you're building your foundation on a, on, a, on a shaky sand and it's going to come crashing down. People's response to that kind of teaching, they, they marveled, they were amazed. Later on at the close of this book in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus would say to his disciples before he ascended in heaven that all authority had been given to him. All authority. All of the rights and privileges, all of the rule of government, all of the physical and mental power, and all of the power of choice and liberty would be given directly to him. And the people's response to that kind of authority, you know, we we try to go against authority. Like it just is sometimes inside of us, that sin nature, it comes out. We don't want to do that. Like if somebody tells me to do something, I'm more apt not to do it simply because they told me to. But their response to that kind of authority 
was wonder and amazement. Many of them left everything in order to follow that Jesus. When is the last time that you were that struck, that amazed, that in awe, that speechless over the words that came out of Jesus' mouth? Because truth be told, that same kind of, certainly obedience, but that same kind of amazement, that same kind of a wonder, that, that same kind of awe should come in us every time we read any part of this. Because this isn't just Jesus' words, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 for us. This is Jesus' words, Genesis through Revelation for us. And every single part of it is amazing to us. Paul wanted us to feel that way. And it's in your notes this morning, and it's a launch pad for the rest of the message, because in 2 Timothy, he writes these words in chapter 3, verse 16, to his young protege, making sure that he always had an opportunity to feel that kind of awe, that kind of wonder, that kind of amazement, and always be willing to submit to that kind of authority of Scripture in his life. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. For us to be struck and in awe and amazed and to marvel at this word and to consider it any and every kind of authority in our life, first we have to believe that it's true. So the idea that we want to set our foundation on a, on a rock, on a stone, on something that's immovable and unshakable when disaster strikes in this life, for us to choose this word as that rock and this salvation as its foundation, we have to believe that the words that are inside this book, the words that it contains, we have to believe that they're true. And so a question that we ask right here at the start of, of this brand new year is, how do you know, how do I know, how do, how do we collectively know that the words in this book are true? That the Bible is true, the very fact that the Bible is true, it's in your notes this morning, comes from its source, which we believe to be God. Wayne Gruden, uh, he's a, 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 a theology author, writes seminary books that we all have to read at some point. It says, he says this, the authority of Scripture, the fact that this book is authoritative in my life, means that all of the words in it are God's words in such a way that to disobey or to disbelieve anything in this book is to disobey or to disbelieve God himself. The reformers, they actually believed that God did not personally write down every single word in this book that appeared on the pages of this Bible, but that just because he didn't pen them himself doesn't mean that they are any less his words as if they had been delivered to us directly from heaven. The authority of Scripture ultimately comes from its source, its, its author. And if you go back into history, when we were all just one big giant, like Christian church, or the Church of the State, or the Catholic Church, the Anglican, we're all there right there together before the Protestant Reformation, what you realize is that they had adopted and brought in this idea of dual source theory. And you're like going, oh my goodness, what's he talking about? This is so boring. I'm so sorry. But this idea of dual source theory, the idea that we have two sources of divine inspiration in our life. And that's what's going on in the world today. That's what's going on, honestly, in the Catholic Church. See, we have many Bible-believing Catholic brothers and sisters in faith, but what they are plagued with is the idea that there are two sources of divine inspiration in our lives. The first is Scripture, and we're going to say that Scripture is divinely inspired by God, but the second is church tradition. And that means that over time, 
everything that this pope and this bishop and this ultimate world leader has said, we're going to adopt and follow as if it's as authoritative as this book. And the reformers, they gave us this gift. They wrote everything in Latin because people that are like writing speak Latin are just way smarter. But they gave us this thing called five solas. And the first is really important. Sola scriptura. And it solo, only one, one source, scripture. We have one authoritative rule for how we live our life, not tradition, not history, not some decision that some man made, but ultimately and only the word of God. So we're, we're single source theorists. And you're like, oh, well, what, what makes us different from other churches? Oh, it's because we dunked instead of sprinkled. It's because they were older instead of babies. Oh, it's because, no, there's a lot of differences between us and any other denomination or any other church. And if you leave these doors this morning and go, I am never going back in there again, it hurt me to say that because I hope that doesn't happen. Please, find a place, find a pastor, find a denomination or a congregation that is only about the scripture, that pronounces and proclaims in Latin or in English or in any other language you choose to worship in sola scriptura. We're only going to put our faith in the authority of what these words say and all the other solas, sola fide, in faith alone, sola gratia, in grace alone. We're going to put our faith in all of the other solas because we believe only that the words of this book are true. Why are they true? Because they're divinely inspired by God himself. Paul told Timothy that God breathed it out for us. God gave us these words. And it's in that and in that alone we're going to put our faith, not in ever-evolving church traditions, but in Scripture and in, in Scripture alone. Sola, solo, only in Scripture. The Bible alone is our highest authority. And Scripture comes from God. That's what gives it its value. So when Paul writes, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, and therefore useful. Some of your Bible translations say profitable. It literally means that it has value. It literally means that it gives us some benefit in life. It's the Greek word ophelimos, and it literally means to hold value or accumulate benefit or to have an advantage. Everybody wants an advantage in life. I want advantages in life. Well, this is my ultimate advantage in life. So the Word of God, all Scripture... Everything in this is, 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 is breathed out, the, the, the divine and inspired word of God. It's valuable because of its source. It's valuable because of what it offers us. It, it, it offers us teaching and reproof and correction and ultimately everything that we need to know and do in order to be able to accomplish God's will and word in our lives. That word of Thelmos, it pops up in another one of Paul's letters, in another one of Paul's moments. In 1 Timothy 4, 8, he says this, for physical training. Now, some of us have made commitments this year. It's 2019. It's January. We've got to make some physical commitments, like I'm going to work out more and I'm going to eat less. And it doesn't matter what diet plan you're on or what kind of eating plan you're on. It always involves less of something. Now, it may be one of those plans that's telling you, you just got to eat fat and meat and protein and like put an extra butter on stuff all the time. I'm all for that. But you still have to say no to all of the sugar and all of the carbohydrates and sometimes even the fruits, which I find really weird, but it works for some people. Like that whole physical training, it has some value. We're going to get on a diet this year. We're going to adopt a new workout program this year. And that physical training, according to scripture, Paul writes to Timothy, it has some value, but godliness has value for all things, 
holding promises for both this present life and also the eternal one, the life to come. That the Bible is true comes from its source. That the Bible is true, it gives us opportunities to grow. It has benefits for us. That the Bible is true undergirds our doctrine. It's what we believe. In fact, the Bible tells us what we believe. It tells us what is true. It's useful for teaching and for reproof. That idea of reproof is not really an English word that we use in a lot of sentences. Like we're reading this Bible verse from 2 Timothy 3.16, and we're like, oh, the Bible is useful for teaching. Well, I know what that is because teaching is a word that we use for math or driving or a YouTube video when you have to replace a part on the front of your refrigerator. Like somebody needs to teach you how to do that. So you read the instructions or you watch the video. Like we use teaching all the time in lots of different contexts, but reproof is not a word that I use ever. And it literally means this idea of coming up against something that is wrong about you. And now I realize why we don't use that word very much. Because we don't like to be told that we're wrong. And we don't like to come face to face with something about us that's not right. We don't like to have our authority or our liberty or our rights questioned. So bring on the teaching, Jesus. Tell me how to have better finances. Tell me how to have more friends. Tell me how to get a better marriage. Tell me how my kids can turn out to be not horrible human beings. Tell me. Like, I'm all about the teaching that Scripture gets. But see, this, this word is useful for more than just teaching me. It's useful to prove the parts about me that are not right and in alignment with what God's word says. So come face to face with that kind of reproof. And the Bible offers you a correction and an opportunity to be trained in the right way to live. See, this word undergirds our doctrine, what we believe, but it also underpins our conduct, how we live. It corrects us. It puts you on the right path and tells you everything that you need to know and do to follow Jesus and not do because we earn his salvation, not do because we earn his favor, not do because we earn his blessing, but do in light of the fact that Christ died in our place for our sins while we were still sinners. He made a sacrifice that saved us and so we want to walk fully in that salvation. Well, this book tells us how to do it. This book tells us why to do it doesn't give us every single detail. Have you ever noticed that? Like the Bible doesn't tell me how to manage my technology. It doesn't tell me like how many hours a day I should be on this. It doesn't tell me like what apps I should get. And it doesn't, it doesn't tell me what ratings of movies that I should watch and what ratings of movies that I shouldn't watch and like how much violence is okay and how much violence is too much. It doesn't tell me like what time I need to get. It doesn't, this book didn't tell me what career path to go on in life. It didn't tell me how many kids we should have. It didn't tell us what size house we, like, like there's a lot of details that go missed about the, the idea that we're following Jesus with our life. And, and, and I want to remind people over and over again that just because something is true doesn't mean it has to be precise. And the writers of Scripture knew that. And the original audience of Scripture, the Jewish people, they knew that and they were okay with that. It's only us, our Westerners, our, our, our Americans, where we get a little frustrated that, that the Bible is true and we can adopt that, but it's not always precise. Well, I can tell you that it takes me about 10 minutes with no traffic to get from my house to this door. 
But if it actually takes 11 minutes and 48 seconds, I'm not a liar. I'm just not completely accurate. 10 minutes is still true. It's just not precise. And so we're looking at Scripture to give us that truth. John writes for us right at the end of his book that that he's summing up the life of Jesus. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that Jesus said and did for those three years. It doesn't tell us, like, all the items that he ate for breakfast every morning or, or, or what time he went to bed. It doesn't give us all the specifics of his life. They're not recorded in this book, but he says why. These are written. Everything that John wrote down, everything that the other gospel writers wrote down, everything that Paul included, everything that the early church adopted as canonical in Scripture for us so that we could know that this book is the identifiable, inspired Word of God is recorded for us. Why? That we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We, we often want to ask a lot of questions about like, How do I know that the Bible is true? And when you put the emphasis on how do I know that the Bible is true, the emphasis is on me believing it and whether or not I feel like the argument that you make to prove that the Bible is true is qualified. Tim Challies is a writer and he says, if the Bible were to appeal to our reason, to to my reason, to substantiate its authority, it would actually be implicitly showing that human reason is a higher authority than Scripture itself. So I, I want to have lots of conversations about how do I know that the Bible is true. But when we do that, when we, when we add the emphasis on the I and the no, we, we bypass the first part of that question and, and we, we miss something that might even be more important for us. The, the how do I know that Scripture is real, that the Bible is true? It's not how do I know as if I get to approve that somehow the argument that you make, whether it's from the historical perspective or the archaeological perspective or because some kind of verified scientific proof that Scripture is real, that it's founded. It's not me figuring out that Scripture is true and giving it my stamp and my seal of blessing. You are the authoritative Word of God. And because Nick Allen read it and said it and believed it, then it must be true. We, we bypass putting the emphasis on the first part of that question. How? How in the world do we ever get to that point? Because there's a big difference between why and how. When it comes to how, we have a big obstacle in our way. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians, says the God of this age. That's just a really polite way of saying Satan. It's just a, a really kind, like PG version of the enemy. Like we have an enemy out there in the world, and the enemy of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And when we're blind, what do we do? We want, we want to correct our blindness. We want to be able to see. So, so we, we put on glasses or we insert contacts, which you guys who know me know that I don't do that because I don't touch my own eyeballs. Like I can't even, like I'm a four-year-old lying on the couch whenever Susan has to put eye drops in. And like, she, I'm literally like, have you done it yet? Have you done it yet? Have you done it yet? And she's like, hold still, you're a two-year-old. Get this together. Like I can't, that's, can't wear contacts because I can't put drops in my own eyes, but glasses I can get on board with and I can see you better when I put them on. And so we look to all sorts of corrective lenses to help us see, like we've got our archeology span lens and we put those on and we only see through the lens of like somebody going and digging up something that proved that an 
event happened, like for me to believe that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, I need somebody to get a grant and invest a whole lot of money to go and dig something up so that if they pull something out of the ground that proved that an ancient city of Jericho was there and through some sort of like scientific experiment, because we want to verify science, by some kind of scientific experiment, they proved that the wall fell down in one day then all of a sudden, because of science and because of archaeology, these lenses that I put on, I will give this book my seal of approval and tell you, oh, this happened. Or because history, like we had this this whole debate for like a whole generation that the Bible must not be true because the Bible says that there is a king called Tiglath-Plessier. That's a weird name for anybody. If you're having a baby in 2019, please don't do Tiglath-Plessier. Go with like Jacob or Luke. Those are much better. But like Tiglath-Plessier was a king. And we must have assumed that the Bible wasn't real because there was no other historical record of Tiglath-Plessier until somebody dug up some ancient ruins uh, uh, an archaeologist like picked something up out of the ground and then they translated what it said and history has verified for us that there did in fact exist some king called Tiglath-Plessier. So I'll stick on my history lens and say that, well, because somebody else has told me that Tiglath-Plessier exists, then I'll give the Bible my stamp of approval because one more conflict, one more question has now been solved. And when you put on the lens of science or you put on the lens of archaeology or you put on the lens of, 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 of history to give Bible your approval, what we're doing is we're giving history and science and archaeology all of the power and authority to tell us what is right and what is not. And Scripture gives us a, a different clue. We can look to all of these things. They're wonderful tools. I believe that those are tools given by God. We can look to every single one of those tools and all of the other ologies and all of the other studies and all of the other sciences and all of the other arts and humanities and anything that they make you guys get credits for in college. We can look to those things and say to ourselves, they can give us a confirmation of our faith and a confirmation of this scripture, but only the power of God revealing the glory of God can offer to us life-saving belief in the word of God. Paul wrote to that church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God but considers them to be foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So it's okay to to, to put on the history glasses or put on the archaeology glasses or put on the verifiable proof glasses to tell us, is this real? And they can give us a confirmation, but they can't give us understanding. They can give us an affirmation, but they cannot give us the truth. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So how do I believe that this word is true? Study, read, submit. But how do I believe this word is true? The Holy Spirit of God reveals it to us. I love that all of our campuses today are starting off this brand new year with this great question. Like, how do I believe that the Bible is true? How do I believe that the Bible is true? How do I believe the Bible? That's great. But there's another question that should come right after that that all of us ought to really consider as we start this brand new year. It's not how do I, Nick Allen, believe that the Bible is true. How do you know by looking at my life and examining who I am How do you know that I believe the Bible's true? 
How do you believe the Bible is true? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How do other people know that you believe the Bible is true? It's by submitting to the authority of it. By standing up and being amazed every time you hear it read. By being blown away by the Savior of this world who said it. By putting on your spirit glasses and and allowing this thing that seems foolishness to the world to help you understand and apply these words so that your foundation is on a rock so that when the world falls apart, you don't. You submit to the authority of it. I know how I believe that this word is true. The power of the Holy Spirit of God revealed it to me. And everything else that I see and examine in life just confirms what I know to be true about this book. How do, how do you know that this Bible is true? The same way. The power of the Holy Spirit of God reveals it to you. And everything else in life, all of the studies and all of the sciences and all of your personal experiences affirm for you that this word is true. But how do other people know that this word is true? You live by it. You, you, you live underneath the authority of it. I must have quoted it in like four different states and five different sermons last year. It's this quote by Augustine or Augustine, depending on where you live, north or south, of Hippo. He said this, if you believe only what you like about the gospel, and let's just make that bigger, if you believe only what you like about this Bible, And if you reject what you don't like about this Bible and reject what you don't like about this gospel, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And I just decided a long, long time ago that God is way more trustworthy than I am. And so I'll put my money on the wisdom of the Holy Spirit up against the wisdom of Nick Allen any day of the week. Because, you know, there are moments when I don't like this word. There are moments when this word is difficult to believe and difficult to swallow and to trust and to understand. And the only way to know that I really believe it is to willingly and willfully submit to it. When you get it and when you like it, it's easy. It's easy to celebrate and submit. But when you don't get it or you don't like it, just grab the right glasses and make sure that it's the lens of the power of the Holy Spirit that's helping you digest these words. So we sum up the, the first message of a brand new year saying that the way to set our lives and every single part of it on a foundation that will last is to hear and obey the words of God. So we read it, we're overcome by it, we celebrate it, we submit to it. And then we share that with others so that they know that you trust and believe that this is a true word. I don't know a lot about what's going to happen in 2019. 
But I know the rain is going to come in some of your lives. And I know the streams are going to rise. And the wind is going to blow. And the enemy of God is going to knock at your house. And if it's built on a foundation, you'll make it. If it's not, you won't. So we want to we want to build our lives, everything about them, on the foundation of God's word. And the way to do that is to hear it and obey it, and to trust the Holy Spirit to give us a knowledge and an understanding and an acceptance of it. Would you pray with me? Father, we are um, in awe of your word because we can't believe that somehow through generations and through history it's been preserved for us. We can't even understand how the writers compiled it and how history has continued to prove it and just the power of your name being lifted up across continents and over languages and Literally, it's your word that has the power to save. Because your word gives us Jesus. And so, Father, my prayer for my friends in this room today is that we would willingly and willfully submit to the words that are on the pages in this book. Because they are your words. And they are a gift from you to us. To tell us how to live and how to experience the fullness of life in Christ. So would you help us have the resolve and the passion and the excitement and the enthusiasm of living, not just hearing, but living according to these words. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.